You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith. Welcome to the show. The interview subject lined up for your listening pleasure is Tim Pope from the Sydney outfit, The Amenta. The catalyst for the conversation is the release of their extraordinary new album, Revelator. It is very much a modern, extreme metal classic. I believe it will be looked at as such in a few years' time at the very least. Anyway, certainly one of the strongest albums I've heard released through 2021. So you can expect all of the usual questions about the album and what's going on in Tim's life regarding the band, and of course the band by extension. But of course toward the end, as hopefully you long-time listeners have come to expect, we do exchange a fair bit of banter, and that's the point I want to make in this introduction here. I don't do traditional interviews. They're conversations. They're an exchange of dialogue. So with that in mind, here he is, Tim Pope. It's like we're being rewarded with all this great music coming out of Sydney at the moment. And and I've got to say, you're you're pretty much at the head of that pack there. Oh, thank you very much. Well, I I had a good listen to Dicey Sent Across Revelator. Yeah. And I've been listening to it. On and off, for, he sent it to him, to me in February, but of course you tend to listen more intently uh, if you understand like when you're doing the interview. So you tend to pick up more things. Yeah. And uh, I reckon the most prominent aspect of it is a bit of a cliche, but I think it's cutting edge extreme metal. I don't think I've heard a band sound as relevant to 2021 as you guys do. Wow, awesome. Thanks, man. Because you're a blend of all of these wonderful influences. Now, I have listened to some interviews with you. And in one of those interviews, you described the band's sound as a mix between Morbid Angel, which Morbid Angel, by the way, is my favourite band of all time. So always going to find a way to my heart with that there. Portishead and Big Black. But I'll tell you what, I'd probably swap out Frank Black or uh, Black Francis, as he tends to go by, for Michael Girard and Swans. And I'll give you the reason. I've, I've spoken to Michael before, and he's, he's, a, he's a hard taskmaster, let me tell you. I was easily yeah. the most nervous. Before, I was so nervous before that interview, uh, with good reason, because he does yell at people, I think. you know. Yeah. But uh, I ended up having a great conversation with him, but nobody quite gets the apocalyptic vibe as well as what he does within Swans. And you guys go very close to that. So does that resonate for you? Definitely. I mean, we're, we're all big fans of Swans. One of the best shows I ever saw was the, the, the first time I saw Swans, which actually was on their, their first tour after they reformed, and it was just incredible. And that was not, not – I don't know if it was a direct influence, but I think some of the, sort of the longer passages in this album, um, when we were kind of writing them, they kind of extended out, and we, they felt a bit like, hey, Swans do this sort of thing. They do it for half an hour. Maybe we could do it for just a little bit longer because mm-hmm. in the past we've been really – We'll have a riff and, you, you know, you play it four or eight times or something, it feels like it should change. Um, but this time we just let things breathe out a bit more and I think that was probably a, probably was a Swans sort of inspired kind of thing. So they're, they're definitely a band that we all really, really dig and um, they, he does have that way with that sort of... It is apocalyptic and it's um, it's like world-eating kind of music and that's definitely yeah. something that we, we like in the music that we listen to and, and I'm glad that it comes out in the music we create too. I was aware you, you, you've almost developed a bit of a legendary status in Australian metal at this point in time, I must say. But I've also got to confess that on Revelators, the first time I've sunk my teeth into what you guys are up to. And, I, and I, I feel a bit silly because I think I should have been aware of you guys before that. But uh, look, I, I do a lot of, you know, I'm on Dicey and Miller's mailing list, so I tend to just trust them. Yeah. And I'm glad I did because uh, I, I, I think Revelator is, is one of those albums. So whilst I've said that Revelator is an album that is truly emblematic of right now, I also think it's an album which hints at what metal is going to sound like in the future. Would you would you say that that cutting edge approach that I've I've described you guys as having yeah. is that in, intentional, or are you are you trying to make music that sounds as as vital and as current as possible? I guess well, it's it's definitely not something that we we go out and do consciously, but I think it's the it's part of our process. So when we're writing, it's quite often, or it has been in the past, us sitting together in a room 
Um, usually Eric is the guitar player and I will write a lot of the stuff together. Uh, and it's, it's about keeping each other and ourselves excited. So when you, when you come up with, mentioned Morbid Angel being a, a key inspiration, you can come up with a riff that sounds like something Trey would play. And it's, it's like, wow, that's cool, but it sounds like Morbid Angel. And that doesn't give, give me that excitement, doesn't give Eric that excitement. So it's not something that we necessarily chase. It's more when you play something and it just it sounds surprising and new. That's when you go, fuck, there's something there. Let's let's chase that idea down and see if we can make a song out of that. And so it just it happens because this the things that we we stumble on, because it's all about improvisation and just jamming on things and trying things and all that sort of stuff. It's when you find those little things that don't sound like anything else that I think that's that's when the songs actually come. If we were trying to stack together a bunch of Morbid Angel riffs, we'd sound like every other band, but I also don't think we'd manage it. I don't think we'd get to the end of the song because we'd get bored. I love Morbid Angel's riffing, but if we do it, it sounds fake. It doesn't sound real. It sounds real when Trey does it. So we want to have that version of um, our our guitar playing and our, our songwriting. We want to have the Amenta riffs. And so we just keep mucking around until we hear something that just sounds right. And so I think that's how we get this sound that hopefully doesn't really sound like anyone else. I remember back in the day, and it might sound like I'm going to throw a band under the bus here based on your point, but I'm not really throwing a band under a bus. I'm just making a point about how many bands in the 90s, and you look like you're my, about my vintage in your 40s or thereabouts. Forgive me if you're not. <laughs> but uh, I remember where bands like Killing God and there was a few others, they all just sounded like Altars of Madness. Yeah, you go to a you go to a gig and it it, it just sounded like Maze of like it, some it sounded like they tried to remint and recraft Maze of Torment and songs of bands like that. And yeah. to your exact point, you got annoyed, and the musicians could play. There was no doubt, and I made no disrespect again to the band at all. But uh, if they're still going or otherwise, but there was a period in Australian metal where we were basically worshiping at the altar from a musician's perspective, worshiping at the altar of Morbid Angel. Yeah, intended, I suppose. But you guys, you guys have paid another—I wouldn't even say paid homage to Morbid Angel—but you've your cover art, and I'm going to mispronounce this individual's name. But Mistasis, is that how you pronounce the uh, the artist's name? Mistasis. Mistasis. There you go. Yeah. Well, I feel. Well, I think Elude Divinum Insanus is—it's uh, overlooked, and I've spoken to—I've even spoken to Trey's mum about Elude Divinum oh. Insanus in terms of the response, the critical re- it wasn't even critical; it was a hysterical response that it got. Yeah. But uh, you guys have worked with the Mastazis as the fellow that did the artwork associated with um, Elude. So, how did you how did you connect with with him? Well, we we knew his work. He's done you know a bunch of stuff. So he did that album. He's he did a Psychroptic album. Um, you know, he's done some Behemoth stuff. He's done some Wattain, you know, big stuff that you see around. And he has, he uses a lot of different styles of artwork, but you can always kind of tell it's him. So they're always really eye-catching. And we actually um, spoke to him about uh, doing the cover on Flesh's Air, which was the album just before this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's, the way he works is he's got this, if you go to his website, he's got this splash page that basically says, I don't listen to clients. I'm going to give you what I think is right. And if you don't like it, you can get fucked. And uh, we went to him in uh, 2012 or so in our slightly younger and more arrogant days uh, and tried telling what to do and he told us to get fucked. So we uh, didn't end up using him that time. This time we thought we'd try again uh, and we found him really easy to work with. So I don't know if there's been changes there or if it was just, you know, maybe we've changed. But it was a really simple process to work with him. Uh, and we, we love pretty much everything he's done. And so it was just a matter of, we sent him some lyrics, sent him um, streams of some songs from the album, and he came back with a, a bunch of different ideas. And one of them was that half thing, and, and we saw it immediately and went, "Yep, that's the one." And there was just a little bit of mucking around to, to change some little bits and add little elements. But basically, he came with this this full thing, and he built a this killer three D model of it, three D animated model, so he, we could like turn it around and see it in different angles and all sorts of stuff. It was amazing. It was wow. a really cool experience. It also reminds me a little of that Alice in Chains album from 2009 when Black Gives Way to Blue. Yeah, similar vibe. Yeah. yeah, similar vibe. It's not a copy, of course. It's just it's got that same, both got a heart on there and yeah. both express, expressing like the dark heart perspective in, in, in a way. Yeah. But, uh, it's always good, mate, when you work with somebody that says, stand aside, I've got this. Yeah. You can trust me. Which and, is, 
That's good. I mean, we're not artists and I'm fucking terrible at it. I look at something and I know when it's right and go, yeah, that's that's cool. But to the point, I can't tell him to what to do because I just visual art, I really appreciate, cannot do. I just make noise. You make bloody good noise though. Thanks, man. And on that note, the noise is coming out of your throat. Killer stuff. I, uh, I actually feel, and I said to a young fellow this morning from a band whose name I can't recall at this point in time, of course, because that's what happens when you're trying to remember the band's name. But I said he, his band had probably the best drum sound. Well, uh, in an album, on an album that I've heard this year, your vocal sound takes the cake, though. How on earth yeah. did you get that? That it's, it's not melodic at all, but you can hear everything that's being said, and it's brutal. Oh, that's I'm glad. That's so. Kane's Kane's the vocalist. He's the um, he's been working on his stuff for so long. He's just he's got such a a varied voice, which is um, it's pretty incredible. So I mean, we've always had we've always prized in our vocalist. This is, Kane's our third vocalist, and he's been with us since two thousand and eight. So he's been there a while. But we, he's our third one. But through all of them, it's always been uh, the enunciation is really important. Like. Um, to use Maud Angel again, David Vincent had a very clear enunciated Absolutely. voice and it sounded powerful. And we wanted to do something similar, have a, not that kind of Chris Barnes gurgly thing. We wanted to, uh, to have someone who you can actually hear the words, which would be cool. Um, with Kane and on this album, we didn't never really sat down and said, let's, let's kind of open up the vocals and let's, let's get into a bit more of the clean singing and things like that. It's just, he, like us with the, the music, he just experiments and just tries stuff and we send tapes and stuff back, or not tapes, you know, files back and forth yeah. all the time. Same thing, uh, yeah. And it was just, he just started doing this stuff and it was, it kind of inspired us to, to, to write sort of slightly differently as well. And so we were kind of feeding off each other and doing all this sort of stuff. But he's, got, he's an incredible vocalist. He's got um, incredible tone, I think, as well, just naturally. He's got this, mm. uh, I think, a great vocalist you can tell it's them no matter what they're singing or what they're doing. There's like a character in their voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think Kane's got that. There's this almost like yodeling is not the right word, but there's like an almost a hysteria on some of the phrasing, which is um, really unique, I think. And I, I'm glad we got to use it a lot on this album. Articulate phrasing is the word that comes to mind or the statement that comes to mind with the way that he delivers. And the nice thing about that is, the cadence is at a counterpoint that is musically pleasing to the music that you're coming up with. Mm. So I don't feel like anything's out of place with you guys. Yeah, I'm glad to hear it. It, was, it felt very natural when it came together. It's, um, I know you can sometimes, especially with cleaner vocals in extreme metal, it can often sound like it's just kind of added on top. It's mm-hmm. just like shoved in some stuff just to kind of have it there. And that's something that we wouldn't be interested in doing. So it was important that it felt natural. And I'm glad that it sounds natural. It's very nouveau to do that at the moment, actually. Yeah. Because there's metalcore has now been around for about 15 or 16 years, possibly longer, but as a popular genre, if you like, and a lot of these guys are maturing. And when they mature, they generally go heavier, I've noticed. They don't get lighter. Yeah. These days, bands go a lot heavier, which I think is just a wonderful, beautiful thing. I mean, this whole idea that you listen to lighter music as you get older and graduate to AOR or some other <laughs> bullshit is just a lie because I'm, I'm finding even stuff that is just not even music. Uh, uh, Trepanering's Ritualin, have you heard of him? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've interviewed him twice and uh, I met him at the Sydney show. I went down to the Sydney show. Yeah. And uh, he's a bloody good bloke, actually. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the he point. Like he's not going to be. He sounds like his music's pretty nasty. I like it. I uh, I listen to it to go to sleep, and he knows that. So it's not that it puts me to sleep, but it puts me in a relaxed state. And, and I yeah. think I like a lot. I call it void music, black void music, yeah. if that's the right term, or otherwise I don't know. But there's a lot of that stuff that's coming out, pushing the envelope beyond heaviness into something far darker, far more sinister. And yeah. and I think you guys have got a lot, a lot of that threaded through your music as well like that apocalyptic swans vibe you guys have got a musical version of it though and uh it's just it's just a beautiful thing to see that in 2021 we're rewarded now with all of this great heavy music and something about you guys too mate is that i did some i could be wrong here but the impression that i formed when i did some deep diving is that you have a large international following far larger offshore than you do in australia now in just about every sense, having killer music alone is nowhere near enough to cut the mustard. So, of course, you've got that. 
but you've broken out of the local market. How do you think you guys did that and you captured attention abroad? We actually, um, I think when we first started, so the first thing we ever made was uh, we did a, a three-song mini CD called Micklin that was in 2002. So it was the first thing we ever did. And we decided at that time, let's not do the traditional way of going to play shows, trying to sell to people and build a uh, groundswell here. We thought, let's just go. We, we've got all these band photos. No one knows who we are. No one sort of really knows what's going on in the band. Let's just go and um, take this EP, press a whole bunch of copies and send them out for review. And so that's what we, we sent them internationally. I mean, we sent obviously to Australia as well, but overseas to every, every web zine or every uh, print magazine we could find, we sent them a copy of the album, uh, the, of the release, sorry. Um, and then that allowed us to be almost like outside of place. We weren't necessarily a Sydney band. We were just a kind of, they always talked about us being Australian, obviously, but it was more people, first time Australians would hear about us, would be reading, us, reading about us in an international magazine. Um, which really helped us here. So we then didn't play any shows for, I think, three years after that, not until after our first album was actually released. We actually played a show. And by that time, still no one knew anything about us, but they knew about the album because after sending out that, that mini CD, we ended up signing to a French record label called Listenable. Um, uh -huh, and, they did yeah. the album and they did a pretty, pretty solid job of promoting that. So it was, it was known, that album. And then when we did our first show, We'd never played a show in Australia before, or at all. Um, so people came out of the woodwork just to see what it was all about. And I think that helped us kind of, for a time, seem really alien and um, different and outside of that sort of thing. Uh, mm -hmm. I know as we've gone on, you know, we've, I think we're, we're much more integrated into a, sort of the local scene. I mean, we're all used to playing bands and all that sort of stuff before this. So it's not like we're sort of came out of nowhere. But I think we've still, because we had that start, We've still got that kind of overseas. Um, they know us, I think, if nothing else. I think the, the name's known to a certain subset of people, which is great. I think that's what it was. I, I, without doing any checking, I thought you guys were an offshore act. And there's nothing wrong with that. I just assumed that you were European or potentially North American. And uh, that, that intrigued me because I think you've got to set up, and I appreciate that it's not like, and I hope you do, but you probably won't become a millionaire playing this sort of music. <laughs> But you bet you, you, you're as successful, I think, as you possibly can be, if you know what I'm saying, if my, if my point yeah. is understood. Yeah. Yeah. We're happy with what we're doing. We, we're not here to make money. I mean, I've got a, got a job and all that sort of stuff, and that pays the mortgage. But it's the, the reason why we do the band and the reason why we play extreme music is just for the art of it. It's not about the only success is when you actually release something and you go, that's correct. That feels like we did a good thing. That's the success. And the fact that people, care about it and people listen to it and I get to talk to people about it is uh, like that's just the sort of the icing on the cake that's the that's the part where you're like yeah this this can't get any better this is this is it I mean obviously love to sell millions of copies and but I know it's not going to happen so we just we work with we worked as hard as we can to put out the best album we possibly can and I'm very happy with it what's your philosophy on Spotify uh, it'd be hypocritical to say well I use it I use it a fair bit so, uh, but I think it is a fundamentally flawed system. Um, we see no money from Spotify. So, you know, no matter how, how many plays you get, you're not going to see anything. It's, it's so minute. Um, I much prefer, as, a, as an artist, um, I much prefer something like Bandcamp where you can still stream yeah. an option to purchase and you can purchase merch and all that sort of stuff. And I find that that's a, as a platform that's really, really strong. Uh, but... I use Spotify and I use it to find a lot of new music. So if I read a review, the first thing I'll do is go chuck it on Spotify and just have a listen while I'm, I'm reading the review because it's, it's a great way to quickly just scan and go, am I going to be interested? And if I really dig something, then I'll probably end up buying it on, on Bandcamp. What, are, what do you think the fundamental difference is between, uh, for you as an artist, uh, between Spotify and Apple Music? Um, well, to me, to me, they're two sides of the same coin, to be honest. They, they don't really pay any royalties. So from that side, it's, it's not great from a business perspective. But we also only really, we know we're not going to make any money and we can go into this making money. We, ideally, all we do is just kind of cover our costs. Um, yeah. So if people can find our music and it's on those, so we'll always be on those platforms because I'd rather people heard it 
And, you know, I'd even back in the day when people still used to download things illegally, I'd be happier if people did that than not to listen to it at all. Mm. But it's people who download music are still fans. People who upload music are fucked. The people who download music, they just want to check it out. So I'm, I'm all for Apple Music and Spotify in that sense. It's just that I don't think they're very equitable. I think if you can pay a CEO however many millions of dollars, you can probably pay a slightly better royalty rate considering that your, uh, your whole system is built on exploiting these bands. Do you know why the rate of pay is as low as what it is? Because I haven't dived into it at all, but is it something that you've dived into just to find out, like, you know, when Tom York from Radiohead's getting, I think that was the story when Spotify started issuing checks, he got a, a check for eight cents. That's yeah. Radiohead. Yeah. You know, it, it, you, yeah, do you understand the mechanics behind it? Well, to a certain extent. So what, from my understanding is obviously Spotify, I'll use Spotify as just as an example, but I think this mm. probably applies to Apple Music as well. They, their money comes from subscriptions and from a small part from advertising, um, but mainly from subscriptions. So that becomes this big pool. And then they basically just take, of all the streams um, that were over a month or whatever, they, you know, let's just say, just for round numbers, I'll say a, a million streams. And Tom York got a thousand of those streams, then he'll get one thousandth of the, the money that they've decided to uh, allocate to royalties. But obviously the problem there is not, obviously not all of that money is going into royalties and, and it shouldn't, it's a business, it's got to run. They're going to pay their, their staff and rent and all that sort of stuff. But the problem mm-hmm. is if you've got people at the top making ridiculous amounts of money, um, then, you've, then you've got of that pool of money, they're taking a big chunk out before they even split it out amongst all the, um, all the artists. So they're, they're, I mean, there's another side too, which is that, a lot of bands aren't the rights holder of their music. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. So they get paid a royalty on that. That So the royalty that, or the streaming uh, royalty that comes from Spotify goes to the rights holder, which is often a record label, mm-hmm. who then pays a percentage of that back to the band. But they're also recouping, um, recouping any sort of outlay. So if they give you an advance, then they might give you a few thousand dollars as an advance for an album. They've got to recoup that so you don't see anything anyway. So with interest, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's all, there's so many fingers in, in the pie. It's just kind of the way it is, uh, which is why I think something like Bandcamp is much more equitable because a band can put their music up. There's no gatekeeping. There's no like uh, with Spotify and Apple Music, you need an aggregator to put mu- your music up there. You need like a, a TuneCore or, um, or one of those things to actually get your music on there, which comes with a cost. So that's kind of like a gate. Um, but with Bandcamp, you just literally just upload it and it can be on sale in, in five minutes and people can... I, I found in my experience at Bandcamp, we put our stuff up and put it on at... Um, I think most of our albums are on there at five bucks, except for the new one, which is um, actually run via listenable. And then we've got all our EPs and things are on there for pay what you want. And people will download them for free and you know they're welcome to. That's what it's there for. But that, what I'm amazed by is the number of people who will actually either pay for it or pay substantially for it. So we had uh, our 2011 release um, was this digital thing called Void, which was uh, one new song, some re-recorded songs, some remixes, instrumentals and things. And that was up on um, Bandcamp as pay what you want. And someone once paid 30 bucks for it, even though they could have downloaded it for free. Because I think people are aware that by, by paying that money, they're paying money basically directly to the band. Bandcamp takes, I think, 10% out of it. There's a PayPal fee, but the rest of that money comes directly to the band. Um, so that, that side of things, I think, is a lot. It's much closer to a merch table, I guess, than, um, than Spotify and Apple Music and that sort of stuff. That's always been my understanding of Bandcamp. Is you, you, you're the first person I've spoken to that's actually got that about Bandcamp, which is that it is a merch table. Hmm. It's, it's like walking, being at the gig and walking up and seeing the, the T-shirts, the stickers and the badges and the CDs and yeah. cassettes is the big thing these days as well, yeah. vinyl potentially. It's that opportunity. So do you have an idea for you guys? So obviously it's better for you guys and from a financial perspective for people to support you through Bandcamp. Have you got like, is there anything you're doing via social media to capture people's attention in that, in that direction? We pretty much all, um, not all of our uh, social media posts, but a lot of our social media posts will have a kind of a call to action to say, hey, if you like this, go check this out. But the problem with, I think, with social media is 
not only is there an issue with the algorithms where you're talking to less and less people. So I, I can't remember the number. We've got X amount of thousand followers on um, Facebook, for example. Mm. And a post will get, you know, it'll get seen by 600 people of, of I don't know, 13,000 or something. Yes, yes. So you're talking to a, a very small audience and you're not really breaking out of that. So I think there's, we've done some advertising and things like that and I don't know how much the yield that is. I think the, the best thing is for, for anything like that, Bandcamp and anything like that, is, is word of mouth. And you can see when people review or when a new interview comes out or something like that, you talk, you're talking about the album or people are reading about the album. I think you, you get people then will go check it out and end up buying it. So yeah, that's one way, I guess, that um, the kind of the community of, of things, the sort of the artists and, and the, the media and, and the critics and all that sort of stuff are really quite self-supporting in that way. So we're... Like talking on, on your podcast, for example, you, I'm sure you've got listeners who aren't aware of us before uh, and hopefully they're going to hear us. And now that's us breaking outside of our cycle now. Um, obviously, when this is published, we'll put it on our um, social media as well. And I imagine you'll do the same. And once again, we're getting into a different circle mm. uh, and sort of everyone's kind of expanding their, their reach that way. Uh, then it just becomes, it's like the old days. Then it just relies on the fact that you've got to actually have the, the good music to back it all up. And hopefully people are going to check it out and then, support that way and tell people about it and recommend and all that sort of stuff. I think in some ways that aspect is a lot more so when it's sustainable. I don't know if it's, if you can grow as big, but at least it's sustainable. Yeah. A couple of points there. First one is, yeah. Th- if you share this, thank you because I'm, I'm, I never take it personally, but it used to surprise me. No longer does the amount of bands that don't share the podcast episodes. Yeah. So th- they're looking for curated content that they've done themselves and it's, it's crazy to me because podcasting and now video casting, I suppose, with Zoom, although I don't really, I don't do any of that. I've done a couple, but uh, my, my, my issue is I've got young kids and I'm busy with work and life in general. And uh, yeah. podcasting is about the extent of what I can probably manage and be effective. And, and also the, the video side of things, which I know is how you penetrate on social media. Uh, in terms of to maximum e- efficacy, it just takes a long time to put together decent-looking videos, in my opinion. Yeah. I wouldn't see. I won't do this. See, a lot of people put up the footage of you there and me here, and I know Zoom is very good. It cuts to who's talking, but to me, it just looks like a bunch of talking heads. Like uh, remember C-SPAN? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just reminds me of that a little bit, and I, uh, I just don't see the point. To be quite frank, that's my philosophy. But uh, yeah, it's. Um, the issue that I think overall I find I think may happen with Apple Music and Spotify, far more to do with Spotify Spotify due to the playlists, the death of the album. Mm. Now, it's been greatly exaggerated with heavy metal because metal fans want the collection of material. Yeah, um, It's a metal, it's an album genre metal. But elsewhere, I'm noticing, as I do, I do interview some indie artists, they've got no intention of putting together an album and uh, at, at a certain point, maybe Spotify won't support the album because they're dictating the rules at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Do you think that is a possibility though? hundred um, percent. You can already see, as you say, you can already see how it's changing. Albums are a lot shorter now. So mm. back in the sort of the nineties, it was not uncommon to have a sort of 60 minute album, you know, up to like a, People used to fill the CDs when CDs came out. Technology always Metallica, changed. yeah. Metallica yeah. did that, yeah. yeah. Now, albums getting shorter, so it's not uncommon to have a 30-minute album. Um, whereas before, you know, Rain and Blood was the exception. Nowadays, most albums coming out are between 30 and 40 minutes. Um, so that's already shrinking that down. And I think it's going to get, it's going to happen more and more. Songs will probably get shorter. So you notice that um, in, in pop, uh, more so, where they're trying to get on TikTok and go viral through TikTok. Yes. You actually only need about 90 seconds of a song for it to do what it needs to do, which is almost like, you know, an old residence thing or, or wire or something like that. It's like, like pop songs cut down. It's actually quite impressive in some ways. They cut it down to the absolute core thing of what it is. No fucking around. Just here's a verse, here's a chorus, get out. Um, but I think uh, that's, that's going to change. And, and I, we, are a little bit perverse, you know, we, while doing all this, all this was all going on and we did talk about maybe we shouldn't do an album, maybe we should do um, a group of EPs or something, but it just doesn't yeah. feel right to us. And I think you're right, metal is album based. 
to us, it's kind of, I mean, we'll, we'll, we've released EPs and we'll do that again, but the albums are the kind of the big work and they're the, you put in a lot of work and it's a lot of effort to get it happening. But then when you've done it, it feels monumental. Whereas with an EP, uh, it, it feels just a little bit more ephemeral. But of course, unfortunately, albums only have a very short lifespan now. So that's the other thing. Everyone can access all music all the time. So you hear an album and you love it for a week until your release radar updates and you hear something else and you listen to that and you like, oh, I was actually just flicking through Spotify the other day. And there's all these albums that I was listening to heaps at one point. And I was like, fuck, I forgot about that. It's like, it's only been yeah. two months or something and I've just completely forgotten about it. It's amazing how quickly you, you just kind of move on. Whereas back in the day, especially when I was, you know, in high school, you'd save up all your money and you'd, you'd go, there was a, a record store in, in Sydney called the Hammer House. And I used to go there on a weekend and I'd have my 60 bucks and I was like, right, I'm going to get two CDs. And I'd go spend, you know, three hours in this shop trying to work out how I was going to spend my money the most effective way. And I'd get those CDs and I'd listen to them religiously for six months and know them back to front. But I, I don't really see that happening all that much anymore. People hear an album, they'll like it, they'll probably share it on social media or something. But I don't know if they have the staying power, which is kind of sad because I think for us, a lot of our albums, I think, benefit from um, getting lived in a bit. You've got to kind of spend a bit of time with them. There was, mm -hmm. We did an album in 2008 called Non, which was a really sort of abrasive, ugly, uh, noisy, electronic kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it was, at the time, it, it may be just remembering it differently, but it felt like people just didn't get it. They were just like, what the hell is this? Because it came off our first album, which was more traditional sort of black and death metal. This one went a bit bananas and people just were like thrown by it. And only recently when we started posting on social media stuff again, uh, I mentioned something about it being, you know, our most misunderstood album. And it turned out that there was fucking heaps of people who that's their favorite album. Because in the interim, so since 2008, they've been listening to it and listening to it and they get it, they understand it and they've grown to sort of understand the kind of the language of it. Um, and so that album's now got its fans and it's really appreciated by a certain group of people. And I'm not sure that if we were to release that album now, or even this album, I'm not sure if it's going to have that, those people listening to it, um, you know, in, in six years time. I, I, I hope so, but I just don't know. Agreed. And you mentioned something in there too, which I certainly remember because I used to order albums through them, which is the Hammer House. I yeah. haven't heard somebody in Australian metal mention that ever, that place yeah. ever. You're the first person, you've got a couple of firsts in this conversation. Yeah, they, I found them, I found them like, Initially, I found the selection of, in the, the catalogue was pretty broad, and then they started to get into all of this underground stuff that didn't make any sense. Like, to me, if I want to listen to Deicide, I will listen to Deicide. I won't listen to a band who sounds like Deicide, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And they were bringing in a lot of that stuff, and I think I made that comment to them. Um, and I don't think I got a response back, by the way, but that, that's okay. But that Hammer House, I remember thinking... Yeah, that's that's my record store. I, I might I might have bought my first ever black metal album from them. Wow, like a '92 or whatever, which was pure Holocaust. Yeah, wow. And uh, I tried. I basically found it was either that or Absu's, um, the one where he, he looks. Basically, they look very similar. The album covers, pure Holocaust and the Absu album, but Baratham. Vitriol, yeah. I think it yeah. is, you know, that one. Yeah. And I, I basically had them both. I'm glad I picked, I think that Absu album's a killer album since. I've got yeah. into it since. But Pure Holocaust set me, it was Legion. I think I got Legion um, from just like a Red Chandlers or, or um, Sanity or whatever. I can't even remember yeah. where the hell I got it from now. But anyway, but I distinctly, I'm pretty sure Pure Holocaust came from them. And uh, yeah, that that shop was was. A, like I, th I think it deserves to be known as a bit more than a footnote in Aussie metal history. Yeah, because because it did. They had it was a label too called Warhead. Yeah, Warhead remember that? Yeah. yeah, Warhead. And I remember getting Cryogenic, Mortality, Genocide. Yeah, there's a few others on CD. They went through. They signed a bunch of bands and bought them out. And I remember just yeah. ordering them sight unseen. And most of the stuff was pretty killer. So yeah. you obviously you were obviously going there to the physical store and buying things. Yeah, that was kind of as local as I could say in, in Sydney, there was basically those guys and there was Utopia. Mm. Um, but it, I always liked the Hammer House because it seemed more, it was, you know, a tiny little shop. It wasn't much bigger than the room I'm in now. And it um, reminds me of, of what you hear about, you know, Helvet in, uh, in Norway that um, yes. 
or your honest run. It reminded me of that because it was just, you know, the black room. There was shit everywhere and albums that you've, from bands you've never heard of. But they were, and they were really friendly. They would, they'd talk, talk you through albums. They'd talk about stuff. They'd play stuff, you know, get excited and start playing things and recommending things. It was cool, you know. It was like that really, um, you know, the, the romantic idea of a record store was kind of lived out there. It was really cool. It's a great place, and Warhead was phenomenal. You know, mm. a lot of the the bands that um, we grew up really looking up to were on that label. I mean, in Australia, like bands like Lord Chaos and things like that. You know, that That's I like, got that one too. Yeah, I remembered yeah. that because it, it had uh, the guy from Demon Ball Gear on guitars, Jamie. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, they did some incredible stuff. Uh, it's a shame that uh, I actually don't know what happened there, but they they just sort of followed up and disappeared. And now where they were, that the building isn't even there anymore. So, is that right yeah, yeah. I, I i was educated in sydney actually i went to a boarding school just nearby actually oh, right. and uh yeah and uh, i used to go down there and have a look occasionally and uh, initially it scared the shit out of me i just yeah. stumbled across it because it was right next to where the buses were yeah yeah that it used to be where the buses were and uh I used to go in there and uh you know i'll say which school i went to kings you see and uh oh, yeah. you know used to go, go in there with my uniform on and uh they, they wouldn't talk to me though <laughs> I think they thought I was up myself as I wasn't, but you know, it's just the uniform did scare people off. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, the, and Utopia was Utopia when it used to be next to Hungry Jack's, no idea where yeah. it is now, but it used to be opposite where the cinemas were. Yeah. And uh, that used to be a killer store. Up here, there was Skinny's uh, Rocking Horse is still going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right, yeah. yeah. And the record exchange, the old fellow with the record exchange is, is still going, and you can always find a gem. In there somewhere that's where i used to go to buy my creator annihilator yeah that sort of stuff because it was like five bucks incredible and sodom uh all these killer albums that you, you practically couldn't give them away yeah but in the 90s you remember what it was like yeah you, was- you couldn't buy that shit and then jb came out and you could finally buy jb with fan i gotta hand it to jb when they came out and they were selling CDs for about $15, $20 or whatever it was. It was like literally yeah. half the price of some of the majors. And yeah. you could buy all Morbid Angel, all Cannibal Course, all DSI albums. I just filled up my collection from there. Yeah. You know, it was, it was a good time to be alive back then, actually. people I, t- I talk to people now about that and I think, you lived with an album, didn't you? Mm. you lived with it. Whether I, I, Like Emperor's, uh, the one that came out in 1999, it's Nine Equilibrium or Equilibrium Nine or something. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. I didn't like that on first listen, but I forced myself to listen to it many times in the car. Yeah. And then I got right into it because it has more of a, like it's a black metal album, but it's got a King Diamond vibe to it too. Yeah, it definitely bit. does, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and that's the problem now, just to bookend this conversation, this point here about the album culture was you don't stay with albums long enough now. There's, there are more bands releasing more albums and there are more platforms to listen to them via. Yeah. That means that, when the Ementa, you guys release an album, a lot of people who would be would prospect as and be would classify you classify them as fans, like they fit, they're looking for you guys. Yeah, they might even listen to it because they're, they're not activating this part of their brain that is actually engaged, and I think that's the key word. They're yeah. engaged. They don't stick with it for long enough, and I, I, yeah, it's a, nothing we can do about it. It is what it is, but it's it's very right. hard for for people like yourself who are creating high quality heavy metal that will stand the test of time to reach a broad audience yeah yeah so it's even really, with the platform yeah i'm glad uh with this album the label we're on um overseas to morty they're really strong on physical so i think if things are only digital they'll disappear because if someone doesn't know to search for them it's about it's like being on the third page of google no one's going to find you yeah, but mm. if there's a physical thing, it'll still end up in you know, ideally not in a secondhand CD shop or whatever. But you know, if you, I used to get so many records from there, I'd turn up and go, "This looks metal, I'll, I'll buy it because it's fucking it's five bucks. I'll just buy it. Don't even know what it is." And you'd you'd hear something, and you know, maybe three times out of ten it would be brilliant, and the other times it'd be at least interesting. But exactly the same, you'd spend the time with it. So hopefully, because there's this physical product of of the album it's going to have a bit longer of a shelf life. People who bought it will listen to it. And then, you know, kids discover it, you know, people some years down the track who don't, who just pick it up because they like the look of the cover and all that sort of stuff. There's still potential for rediscovery. I think for physical, for digital will get lost. I'm, I'm relatively certain. 
That's a, that's a great point. And I, th- I think you're right. I think as soon as the rights holders, to your point, stop putting, uploading these, these albums that by these indie metal artists or whoever it might be via their platform and then Spotify therefore picks it up. So I've got an interface with my podcast with the Wooshka, whatever yeah. the musical version of that is. But, you know, for without knowing for a fact, you're pretty close to know for a fact that within 15 years' time, most of the bands that haven't bothered with physical, their music's gone. Yeah. Just, it, it might not even be on a hard drive anywhere anymore because they stop caring when kids and mortgages and marriages kick in. Yeah. Yeah. It just disappears. It's, it's sad. Touring, mate, now that COVID has wreaked its worst, fingers yeah. crossed. For, for this album to be, for people, I think, to truly graft with this, yeah, sure, listening to it for a lengthy period of time. But I, I couldn't imagine how intense one of your shows would be. I imagine it's similar to watching Hate Eternal, you know, Eric Rutan's vicious yeah. band. I had a good chat to Eric recently, actually. He's a, he's a, I'm actually catching up with him again. He's a bloody good guy, actually. But uh, yeah, yeah. yeah but, but for you guys, mate, how important is the live element? I think I see them as complementary. So they don't... They, I think we could still be a band without live, and we, we have been. So we stopped playing live in 2013... 14, 2014, I think, uh, and kind of went into a hiatus, but kept working. So for us, the band was still alive. But I think there's there's what we do, and I really enjoy creating music and recording music, and I, I like playing live, um, but I find touring unpleasant. You know, the actual actual touring of it sucks because you don't get a shower for 40 days. All you're doing is drinking yourself to death to stop being so fucking bored. Uh, the shows, though, are fucking great. You know, I love playing. Um so it's not something that I've, that aspect of it isn't something that I, I've missed, but I've missed the fact that it's, it's a way of connecting with people and getting the music out there to other people. So there, there's always, you know, every band's got the story where you play a show in some fucking completely unknown place. The one I've got in my head is we played in this, this terrible venue in um, uh, somewhere in the US. It was like, Valley Beach or something like that. I can't Valley Beach doesn't make any sense, but you know what I mean? Like something like one of those stupid American yeah. <laughs> played in this place. It was in the middle of a shopping center. It was like you walk into um, into Kmart and there's, oh, there's a door over there and, and there was a bar with a stage. And it was just, should have been shit. But we played a gig and it was it was fun. And I remember stomping across the stage as I tend to do and, and I kicked a microphone stand accidentally and it smashed into this guy's face. It was right down the front and he was bleeding and all that sort of stuff. And, we played the show and, and then we're packing up and this guy comes towards me with his bleeding face. I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah, this guy's. And uh, he came up and shook my hand and told me it was the, the best show he'd ever seen and he'd never heard of us before, but he wanted to buy us <laughs> in. He signed it and all that. And, you know, it was, it was cool. You know, you, you find people and you make, make those new connections and it's a great way to show the music off because I think we're a different band live than we are recorded. I think recorded, it's still very feral and ugly and nasty, but live, it, it's a lot more chaotic and a lot, lot nastier. I mm-hmm. think, um, you know, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche to say, but I guess it's a little bit more punk rock, you know, it's a little bit more sure. angry yeah. and all over the place. And uh, so it's two different sides of the band, I think. We see that real sort of almost like the fucking comic book nastiness of the live show. And then there's the more considered kind of ugliness of, of the recorded work. So it's two, two different sides. Yes. Yeah. And on the touring front there, have you got any gnarly tour stories? Uh, that, that same show that, uh, the guy accidentally kicked the thing in the guy's face, um, they didn't, they didn't pay us. So we, we had a contract for every single gig of that show, but for some reason, not for this gig. Mm. And we didn't know about this. We played the show anyway. And then, you know, you're relying on the money to get from gig to gig, using that money to buy fuel and food and the occasional hotel room and shit like that. And this guy refused to pay us, um, and so we, we attempted to get the money out of him in other ways, and we ended up having to flee the state to uh, get in front of the police. So that was pretty fun. No one was hurt. Oh, right. Oh, you, had, you had, to, had to punch him in the face, in other words, did you? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. So that was, that was fun. Yeah. So that's, that's America for you. Um, my, probably my favourite moment of touring was, um, it's, it's a really simple one, but it was just a really nice moment. We did a European tour with um, Deicide and Vader and those guys. And it was, it was great. You know, it was really, really fun. Um, we had, I think we had a couple of buses, but we were on a bus with um, some Swedish guys from Debian. 
mm-hmm. uh, and some of the crew and all that sort of stuff. And we'd drink every night and so you'd go, you'd play the show, you'd get pissed at the show, you'd get into the van, drive to the next gig and you'd, everyone would just party on the van. It was great. And we, I can't remember where, where we'd played, but we'd got absolutely just blasted uh, and got to the next gig and the, the truck had pulled up in the night or the bus had pulled up in the night. And I got out of the, got out of the bus, really, really hung over and looked up at the sky. And the first thing I saw, we were in Switzerland and it was just the Alps, the massive Alps there, just on top of, pretty much on top of the world with the worst hangover I think I've ever had. But that was a pretty special moment. It was like, fuck, this is cool. Talk about contrasts. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was wild. Was that the uh, the Deerside gig tour that Dicey tour managed? Uh, we yeah no that was that wasn't that tour, but it, we, we did another one with them that he did yeah. Uh huh. How did did you get onto the Deerside Vader gig through Dicey? Can you tell me like because I'm always curious as to how uh, how an Aussie band can can because that's what you need to do. You need to be on and get that co-sign with those two key yeah. bands, don't you? Well, that was um, for that tour we got contacts for a few promoters and we just hitting them up all the time just going hey we want to come over have you got anything for us have you got anything for us um and it's you know with those tours there's always there's always at that point anyway there were always tours being organized and they, they've got their headliners and they're always looking for the people um to, to basically to open i mean we we're opening these shows so they they've always got these spots down there they're trying to fill with bands who um will be interesting but they they're not big enough to kind of um so they can put them on first up you know exactly like, like yeah they're not going to overshadow with all due respect to you man you're not yeah. the impression is you're not going to overshadow the headliner which that's is right. what they want yeah yeah and and they can also they don't have to pay very much which is the other side yeah so it's it's <laughs> yeah. you know you can go there and you're basically doing it to to eat the shit until eventually people go you know what you can move up the ladder and move up the ladder and move up the ladder until you're headlining which is um psychoptic have just have done that phenomenally they're you now headliner over in europe and the us which just from doing that you know working really really hard uh, but we we basically just were was emailing people all the time and this was this is more eric's um our guitar players thing he was kind of just hammering people sending sending people cds you know um talking to our label putting pressure on our label to put pressure on other people all that sort of stuff you know just trying to make the connections just to find the people and we we're lucky with um that first deerside tour um I can't even remember what the promoter's name was, but it was a guy we'd been talking to for some time and there'd always be tours that come up and we're like, do you want to do this one? And we're like, oh, we'd love to, but we can't for whatever reason. And we, at one point, I remember being really excited because we were potentially going to tour with Immolation. We are like my favourite band. Nice. Like, that, that's going to be the best, but that one didn't happen. But this one just Rob, happened. Robert Vigneault is a fantastic guitarist, by the way. He's totally underrated. He's the best. He's got a, um, an ear for dissonance that, Yes, unlike anyone else. It's so yeah, you said a few things on this on this conversation, man. That I've long thought, but I've never, I haven't heard anybody else articulate, and you've just done it. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to write his biography, actually, Roberts. Yeah, so so overlooked. No, he's phenomenal. He he. I think if you look at all the um, that kind of modern French style of black metal, that really dissonant arpeggioed stuff. Yep. I don't reckon that would exist without Robert. I reckon he's the guy who introduced that kind of twisted sound to extreme music. So Trey Azikthoth has the um, his style, that sort of more swampy kind of, and he's, he's still got the dissonance thing, but there's something that um, in Immolation's music there is like a, it's dissonant, but it's not scronky. It doesn't sound like a guy playing wrong notes all the time. There's almost like a grandeur to it. So by using these very strange harmonies. Everything's just sounds huge. It's massive. And it's really different to the way a lot of people use dissonance. And I reckon... Yeah, he's a pioneer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you. Like how you're talking about bands like Alcest and stuff like that. Yeah, it's... Uh, it, there's, I, yeah, gosh, yeah, you've picked up on a few things there again. Um, I don't know how he's done it. And and that's what I always... I would, he's, he's on my bucket list to have a chat to, actually. Yeah. And if, if, you, if they didn't do album promo the last time, which is interesting because I usually get an opportunity to chat with everybody through Nuclear Blast because yeah. I'm good mates with John John Howarth. But um, those guys didn't do any press for the uh, the album. I bought it on cassette. I liked it that much. Yeah. It's got a little tape player here. But, yeah, he's, he's guitar playing. You're right. He is an innovator, and that's the key word. Yeah. He does, he does do things. But I just don't think people have paid that much attention to what he's been doing, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's it's a shame. I think they're one of the the best death metal bands uh, of all time. They're huge for us. You know, they were mm. 
certain bands that when you first start start out and you're in that kind of um, imitating phase, they were they were big for us. You know, we were we wanted to sound like that. When you were touring with Deicide, was that back when Ralph was in the band, or is that afterwards? Yeah, Ralph Ralph was in. So that when um, on that first tour we did with them, it was um, Ralph and Jack, and then mm. then Glenn and um, Steve. I got to know Ralph a little. Uh, He's really nice. He was a really nice guy. Very nice. I, I've 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 heard of, there's been a few people that have said negative words to say about him, but it seems more like a personality clash. But yeah. uh, but uh, I'm writing a book at the moment. Well, actually, I've written it, but it's a podcast memoir, and Ralph's in it, of course. Awesome. And uh, he uh, he made a point of telling me uh, why he left the aside, and it's all out there, you know. But uh, yeah. he just can't stand people being treated like shit. And he said he wasn't going to stick around and watch that. So did you get that vibe when you were touring with the guys that there was a bit of a separation there? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Ralph spent a lot of time hanging out with us, but I, or like on our bus, I think, because he was a bit of a, he liked to party. Yes, um, definitely. Yeah. So, you know, he was, uh, we spent a fair bit of time with Ralph. He was, you know, a really good guy. It, it wasn't tense with their band, I don't think. But then we didn't really see what happened behind closed doors. But they, it wasn't like they were hanging out and getting beers and, you know, having a good time all the time. They kept pretty separate. But I'm not sure if that's just, you know, the way they are or not. You know, who knows? I'd love to chat to Glenn, but part of me doesn't want to. He's a, he's a nice guy. He's a character, but he's he's not. He's, he's a decent guy. You know, he's quite funny. Yeah, I, I get, I, look, without, you know, I certainly, God, I can't mention any sources here, but I get mixed feedback, to be honest. And uh, yeah. I, so I think he's a legend from a musical perspective. I mean, that's just three, three. I love all of this. I actually prefer Ralph being in the band, but the early stuff, you know, that, that Slayer death metal thing with the yeah. Hoffman brothers, and then Glenn doing that, you know, that, that screamy yeah. thing that he did underneath the, well, on top of the, the brutal guttural vocal. And uh, that stuff stands the test of time. I still listen to the first four albums, not regularly, but they come on every once in a while, particularly Legion, which is the first ever extreme metal album that I got into. And I think that's why they, they occupy such an interesting space in my, yeah. my psyche. So so for you, it, it sounds like we grew up in the same era. What was your first extreme metal album, your first foray into no bullshit extreme metal? I think the first thing I ever had was Tomb of the Mutilated, I think. I had, I had that on tape. Um, which was a dubbed copy. So I actually remember, you know, going, growing up, I was into what I thought was the heaviest thing at the time, which, you know, when you're a kid, is like, but Guns N' Roses, they're pretty heavy. Yeah. And then, you know, oh, and then uh, someone gave me a tape of, um, of uh, Garage Days, the Metallica thing. And for ages, I thought Metallica's best song was Am I Evil? And it turns out they didn't even write it. Um, <laughs> Diamond Dead, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and then I, um, I remember, I think I was in... I was in high, like in year seven or something at a, at a swimming carnival and my mate had a tape and he's like, check this out. And it was um, Tomb of the Mutilated. And I said, what the fuck is this? Mm. Uh, it was, you know, I'd never heard anything like it. It's, um, I'd, I'd heard of death metal, um, but had no idea kind of what it actually sounded like. It's kind of, you know, you hear people talk about it. And I remember watching, there was a thing actually around, would have been like early, early 90s. There was something on like a, the equivalent of a current affair or something about, it was like a scare thing about heavy metal and they, they were outside a gig and you were watching these people go in there or screaming at the camera and stuff. And I was like, that's exciting. I don't know what that is, but they didn't really play any music. And then, you know, a couple of years later, I heard Tim and the Mutilated and I went, okay, that I like. And so that was the, that was the first tape I had. And I think, I think I had that backed with possibly Hella Waits. It was a Slayer album. I can't remember which one. Hmm. But you know, you just give your give your mate a blank tape, which I probably stole from my parents. You know, put the sticky tape over the um, do not yes. record over bits and yeah, over the uh, over the carpenters or some shit like that. The yeah, that's right. don't do anymore. <laughs> I did that. I remember doing that. That and Cat Stevens. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and and Al, Al, whatever his name is, a teaser in the fire cat. You know those shit albums that you saw yeah. in your parents' collection, and you're like, "What is this crap?" And so, yeah, you put the sticky tape over it. Go to a mate. Can you please record "Faith No More" as the real thing for me, or something? Just exactly. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. I, again, I, I like talking about these old days because uh, it's a bit of nostalgia there, but um, it was a good way to get into music because you did rely on some mates. And of course, me being in the, in the, board, in the boarding school there, I was the only one listening to that music. Yeah. And I, I got paid out for it, actually. I had to sort of listen to it on the quiet. And uh, yeah. I used to record the three hours of power. Yeah, with Costa. And then, yeah, with Costa. You get it. Yeah, far yeah. out. Yeah. I've spoken to a bunch of people and said, remember Costa Zulio and three hours of power? I'm like, no, don't remember it. It did happen. I'm sure it happened. Yeah. I was there. <laughs> it's, I'm sort of getting to that point now where a lot of the people I associate with are of a different age group, different generation. Yeah. And there's that, that three-year period or so that was so immensely important when you're in the smack bang in the middle of high school. When you, Definitely. It's like the thumbprint, isn't it? It's like yeah. when you're listening to material and the stuff stays with you. And yeah. I, I remember I, I, I neglected, I, I rejected, probably the better way to describe it, all grunge. I just couldn't yeah. listen to it at all because I was getting into one end it was extreme metal but then I love Faith No More 24-7 Spies Fishbone Living Colour yeah. um, African American metal artists and, and the like and it was just when you're young 13 or 14 you just think that's what music is you just think that's how it sounds and uh, yeah. and I remember I remember being very cynical when I distinctly remember when Smells Like Teen Spirit came out because at Kings we used to have to play sport every morning every Saturday yeah. Yeah. And so we, we had to wake up early six or whatever. So you'd have a rage and, uh, this, you know, you'd have KLF. Um, what's that KLF song that was big back then? Justified and ancient and all that sort of oh, shit. Yeah. And, and uh, smells like teen spirit had come on all the time. And I remember having an argument with a guy and saying, that's, that sounds like fucking um, dizzy by Vic Reed. That's what oh, I remember. Yeah. Do you remember that? You know, yeah. Can you hear it? Can you hear yeah. it? Yeah. Actually, I'm doing that. You're right. Yeah, it fucking is. And I remember arguing with this guy and saying, it's just it's a louder version of Dizzy by uh, by, by Vic Reeve or whatever his name yeah. is. And and I still think I'm right. But <laughs> but I haven't, but until now, I haven't been able to sort of take, I'm, take, bring anybody on that, take anybody on that journey with me, if you like to yeah. sort of see the similarities. And and I think I was, I was definitely tuned in to the fact that grunge was cynical, meaning it was a mm. marketing thing. It wasn't yeah. as organic, it was nowhere near as organic as what NME and Rolling Stone and all those fuckhead magazines that I still yeah. understand. Hank, with the exception of Hank Stimo, who I've interviewed, who's a big Morbid Angel fan and Emoliation and Suffocation fan in New York, he's a good guy. He's like their metal guy. He's right. a good guy, but the rest of it's just fucking garbage as far as I'm concerned because it doesn't focus on the music. But I distinctly, I, I, felt, I felt like... There was going to be a whole generation, and unfortunately, I was right, of these fans that just didn't understand what a lot of rock music, great rock music, could sound like. Yeah. And Metallica came out with the Black Album, which I thought was an atrocity at the time. Still do, to be frank, my opinion, you know. But uh, but it's so cool to meet somebody else who was sort of swinging into the extreme metal when it was actually happening. Yeah, yeah. Because it's one, it's one thing to say you like the bleeding or what have you now, but it was released 30 years ago, for God's sakes. Crazy, isn't it? It's insane. It's nuts, isn't it? It's nuts that these albums eaten back to life. That's 1989, I think. Yeah, yeah. And Altars of Madness was recorded in 1989. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, Legion's 1992. And we were there the first time around. Yeah. I remember we're, we're, thinking, there was a point where I was like, I remember thinking it's such a young, a young genre of music. It's, it's only been around for a few years and look what's happened in those few years. And now it's like 30 years later, it's fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And, and Hot Metal magazine, I ended up writing for Hot Metal, actually, the, the digital version of it. It's, it's taken offline now, but Steve Mascord runs it. Oh, right. I think he still, yeah, I think he still does it. And, uh, but uh, I, that and Metal Maniacs, I used to go to the newsagent and buy yeah. religiously both of them. And uh, I remember um, my first... The first time I became aware before I bought Legion was uh, of extreme metal was when I saw Chris Hades oh, yeah. in hot metal there and playing the goon as in dressed up and on a cross, I think he was, or cutting his own throat fake, yeah. you know, with all, all of that stuff. And uh, I remember listening to The Magus, was it? Is that the first one That's from first those guys? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, thinking, I, 
I don't know what that is. <laughs> That's uh, that just I thought it was playing backwards or something. I didn't understand yeah. what they'll just sort of put it down after that. But I've since come to appreciate them. And when I was at the Trepanerings ritual and gig, I, I bumped into Dave Slade, who gave me a couple of stickers. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> characters, they were always everywhere. Any any gig you went to, at least three quarters of Sadistic Execution would be there. Rock never seemed to go, but it was always you'd have Dave, you'd have Chris, and you'd have Sloth. All three of them would be there every single fucking time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, Dave was a nice guy. I just, I said, I think I know who you are. You're Dave Slave. And he, he wanted to have a chat to me and I told him I'd flown down for the gig. And um, he's, oh, that's really cool, man. Yeah. I haven't heard of somebody doing that. And it's like, well, he's, he, he didn't play. He only played Sydney or Melbourne, I think. Yeah. Um, Thomas. So I, I wanted to make sure I went down there for that. But uh, yeah, man, it's, it's been cool riffing about the old days, actually. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's. Uh, I, I like talking about the old days, and that I've, I've put a lot of that into the book that'll be released sometime soon. I don't know when, but so it's getting big copy edited at, at the moment to make sure the grammar yeah, is yeah. how it needs to be. And and I've got to I've got to do it for the American market too. Awesome! I'm very keen to read it. Yeah, it's made. It's I'm pretty happy with. It. It's almost a hundred thousand words. So it's. Oh. Uh, I've all I've interviewed uh, guys like Carl from Nile. Uh, yeah. I, most of Morbid Angel, except for Trey, um, obituary guys, uh, yeah. all Testament, you know, all Megadeth, or this sort. Of, and so I thought, well, I'll put, I'll, as a fan, it's just from a fan's perspective. Yeah. Um, what we, because I'm a journalist, I just did it in a news media style. Uh, so I was like, cuts to the guts of it very quickly. Yeah. But there's exactly, and I think some people misunderstand what I do with my podcast. It's, it, I guess it's an interview in a way, but it's more of a dialogue. Yeah, that's more fun. I, I saw a, I saw, I saw some guy, I don't know whether he's, I don't, still don't know whether he's well-intentioned or not. He created a Reddit Reddit forum about my podcast, Reddit thread about my podcast. And uh, yeah. it was kind of complimentary, but then some of some of the other stuff wasn't. I thought, do I join this Reddit thread and actually say anything to these kids or yeah. or just let them have their merry way? And I thought, you know, you know what it's like, mate. No doubt you've read some people say some shit about you. Yeah, whatever. let's go. No. Don't engage. There's no, you're not going to win. Just who cares? Let them do what they do. I don't, I don't bother, mate. Not, I, I've never bothered before. And who was I talking to? Lucas Mann from Rings of Saturn. Yeah. Who was beaten up. Yeah. Because of what was said about him online. And somebody king hit him, I think it was. Yeah. He's been a bit cagey on what happened, but he, he went away for about 12 months. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and he, he, he told me after, oh God, yeah, I'll share this because I, I think he wouldn't mind, but. He um, he told me after our chat that he was he he decided that you know now he needed to come out he needed to sort of face up to those things and a lot of it was because it's the stuff we talked about in that conversation, you yeah. know like strategy how to deal with dickheads online if yeah. they do come for you because my god he has suffered terribly which doesn't make any sense to me with with him and he what he does yeah. he just seemed to be the the lightning rod for people's discontent for a period of time there. It's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, the internet's a, a terrible place. It is, mate. It is, you know. So, but, um, mate, before I let you go, uh, I, the obligatory, please let everybody know where they can support you guys, how they can do that and what the best way to do it is. We've already talked about it, but let's go through it again. Yeah, well, Bandcamp's always a good place to start because um, <laughs> you can you can actually support directly. There's also merch there. Um, we're also, in Australia, we've got um, a couple of merch partners, one of whom is uh, Nerve Gast, uh, and the other is Direct Merch, which is run by Dave, our drummer. Um, so you can get vinyl and CDs and, and even tapes there, I think, at the moment. Uh, and then there's also a whole bunch of merch over on our European label as well, um, which is Debemure Morty. Uh, they've got uh, both a US and a, and a European shop, which has got a whole bunch of stuff. So that's the best place to go. And then if you uh, have spent all your money on all our merch and you still can't get enough, then, of course, you can stream us on Spotify and uh, Apple Music. Revelator, one of the albums of the year so far. Do not say those sort of things lightly. It's uh, it'll be with me for some time because it's dynamic, it's layered, it's textured, and uh, I, I love the fact that I can reference an extreme metal band against Swans. So there, you go. <laughs> great. <laughs> Thank Killer, you mate. very much. No worries, mate. Well, I've enjoyed it. Thanks so much for going there with me and, and having a chat yeah. about all sorts of different things. And uh, look, good luck with everything. I think think it's. You know, you're doing everything you possibly can do, mate, to bring people to raise awareness about this killer album that you've got, anyway. So, yeah, yeah, long you live long and prosper. <laughs> no. no worries, brother. All right, I'll I'll just link you in on socials when I put it up. 
All right, that's great, and I'll, I'll share it around. Thanks, brother. No worries. Enjoy your evening. Appreciate Thank it. Have a good Thanks a lot. Okay, catch ya. You have been listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series that syndicates for the A-List Online. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith. Before I let you go, I just want to address something. If you've listened this far, I appreciate it. God knows how many of you out there actually do that. But uh, I noticed uh, that as I, I, I mentioned, like as I mentioned through the conversation there with Tim, that I became the subject of a Reddit thread. Flattering in some respects, not so in others. I don't do traditional interviews. You will not hear too many of my podcast episodes where there are straight up question and then I give time for the interview subject to answer it. I don't like doing that. It's that simple. I try to engage in high quality banter or dialogue that will hopefully facilitate some new insight from the interview subject and potentially even from me. God knows how many of you out there actually appreciate what it is that I'm doing here. All I can say is I'm trying. I do enjoy it probably more than anything else I can do by myself, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just noted uh, noticed that I copped some flack on a Reddit forum. So whatever, people are entitled to their opinion unless they're assholes and then they can go and get fucked. But as I said, if you've listened this far, you're clearly a fan of what it is that I do and I truly appreciate it. So again, conversation with Tim Pope from the Sydney band, The Amenta. Thanks for tuning in.